0: All right, folks, welcome back to Green Pill, where we focus on making health simple for you, but more importantly, your family, your loved ones, and your community. My name is Alex Shinkarovsky, and among other things, I'm a quantitative health and accountability coach based in Miami and New York City. Today's guest is Kiva Dickinson, founder at Selva Ventures, an early stage VC fund focused on health. Kiva's background is in venture capital and private equity investing, and he helped advance brands like Liquid IV through his career at TPG Capital, Barclays, Circle Up, and most recently founding Selva. Kiva and I had a coffee when I was running growth for a wearable startup, and I was just totally enthused and taken by his view on consumer behavior, on what makes us tick, on how to get people to do things, especially be healthier and his vision of the future for healthy products and services. Uh, So when I started the podcast, he was right on the top of my list of who to reach out to. And today uh, I invited him on to figure out how we change the food system from the private sector's perspective. So how do we do good and do well? You'll hear from him uh, about a few different things, the psychology of decision-making, building trust, really for any business or any service, how and why the current food system operates the way it does, including really nuanced stuff around store placement, data analytics, branding, and then we'll zoom out and talk about how we can create change and make a healthier world overall. So not just food, but skincare products, really anything that goes on or around your body. Um, You'll even get some takeaways on how to hack your own psychology to you know still eat tasty food without uh compromising on on ingredients and on health you know i'm someone that can eat a bunch of celery and peanut butter and be happy with it but i like a good snack like midday squares uh three wishes cereal mud water has really helped me out those are all brands that are under his purview all right without further ado here we go kiva dickinson on green pill all right Kiva Dickinson, welcome to Green Pill. Will first, will you take the Green Pill? Yes or no? All right. Awesome. So listen, what got you so into health, into CPG? You've got some sports background. What's made that your thing?
1: Yeah. I was three, four years out of college, working a pretty intense job, trying to live a healthy lifestyle with a lot less time than I used to. And I started stop and buy Whole Foods on my drive home every day from work to pick up dinner. Essentially, I I didn't know how to cook. So I'd usually go to the prepared food section. I'd navigate my way through the aisles and start to pick up some beverages and some snacks. And what I discovered there for the first time was just these wide range of really interesting, exciting brands that tasted great and were super engaging, but just didn't have the terrible nutritional panel that I knew the things that I ate when I was a little kid had. So whether it be soda alternatives, chocolate, cookies, chips, et cetera, there was some way of getting better function or better ingredients from so many of these different products. And frankly, it was this whole world that I just was so unfamiliar with, didn't realize existed. Um, I was working at an investment firm at the time that basically bought big retailers. Uh, the firm is called TPG. Okay. Jake, TPG and Marcus, Petco, to, to give a few examples. But we weren't investing in these better for you consumer products. And I became pretty curious of why essentially these, this movement seemed to grow faster and faster, bigger and bigger every week that went by of me going to Whole Foods. <laughs> and I began to discover that these companies just used a lot less capital then we at uh. G&G would invest. We would invest between a hundred to five hundred million dollars into a company and these brands would raise less than fifty million dollars on their way to success. And, and I effectively discovered that I wasn't going to be able to do this type of investing in my current role. I gotta find a way to to invest in these companies. And that led me down a career path first to a company called Circle Up and then eventually to starting my own firm
0: where I'm now four months in or four years in, excuse me. And so you couldn't cook, but you were a health, like growing up, you probably had the same snacks I did. Some of the sweet stuff the what are those called? Entables and lunchables and that kind of stuff, popcorn, goldfish, all that. Were your parents super focused on health growing up? A mix? Did you play sports growing up? What led you to the path of being at Whole Foods and even looking at the healthy section and even going to Whole Foods in the first place? I was a big hockey player growing up. I grew up in Canada and
1: living, being healthy. Really meant to exercising a ton, which I didn't have yep. to think about. I, I had practice three times a week. I played two games a week. I might have other sports that I was playing at school. So I, without, without needing to make some plan or effort to go to the gym, I was exercising basically every single day. Yep. My days off from practice, I was probably playing street hockey in the yard or laneway for a couple hours. Eating was mainly driven by my mom. My mom was super focused on health super focused on me having my veggies. There was a sugar limit on the cereal I ate. She tried to limit how much soda I'd drink. Wow. All the good, valiant efforts that I wasn't as appreciative of at the time, but now I really see her for. Um, healthy eating was not super fun, if that makes sense. It was a North Star and mandate that my mom really insisted that we as a family would have, but I'd still want to treat. I'd still want a snack. I'd still love my my root beer and my hamburgers and my candy and that kind of stuff. It was just my guilty pleasures. It's a lot different when you're a teenager versus when you're in your mid-twenties, you're working at a job, sitting at a desk all the time instead of naturally for a couple hours a day. And so it was a call for me to say, hey, healthy living isn't just going to take care of itself. It's not going to be my mom Mm -hmm. forcing rules on what I eat. It's not going to be playing hockey five, six times a week, it's going to be going to the gym and it's going to be putting good things in my body. And that forced intentionality for me for the first time, I had to all of a sudden create rules for myself. And first good rule is let me go to a place that largely only lets good thing and things in the door. And that was Whole Foods.
0: And so you almost automated your, your own health journey at 25 or so, because you said, all right, I'm missing the structure I had. Let me only let myself shop at Whole Foods. You did have a lot of structure growing up. You're someone that grew up eating veggies, playing sports, which is a lot more than most kids can say at times. So it was instilled by your family. And was there any, when you're 25, I guess since it was part of your life already, you looked around and said, shoot, I'm working 12 hours a day as a banker, if not more. I'm already starting to see my health suffer a bit. I'm probably not sleeping that much. So was it some kind of like almost instinctual shoot I got to get back on track or like, What made you, yeah, what made you double down on it and focus on it? What makes it a foundation for you? Yeah, I think it was core to my identity and my happiness to being Mm -hmm. healthy and fit.
1: I didn't want to put on weight. I didn't want to be zapped for energy. As you get older, your stomach stops being able to handle the same feeds as well. I didn't want to feel like bloated and gassy all the time. And I realized Mm -hmm. that had to be a lot more intentional. I had to start making some changes. I had to make rules for myself. Couldn't necessarily trust myself mm-hmm. to, with a clean slate, make the right decision every single day all of these choices. So I had to put constraints on myself. And what I started to find was it was not enough for me to eat boring things every day. I wanted I wanted healthy living to be fun and engaging. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a direct set of really rigorous constraints and trying to mm-hmm. find what's healthy and what's fun and where that Venn diagram overlaps, became mm-hmm. a quest for me that became filled with curiosity and engagement.
0: And that became your career ultimately, which is All fascinating. I, I, there.
1: Never, I never would have thought of it at yeah. the time, but, but yeah, it sure did. And I think the amount of fun that it was in the early days, I think was just a really good signal that this was something that it's fun to me and work to everybody else, maybe I could be pretty good.
0: Yeah. Cause you've really doubled down. If you look at your career trajectory and folks have heard that in intro on CPG companies, so consumer packaged goods who are less than 10 million. So they're relatively early stage that either angel or maybe seed stage of their journey. Product market fit might be there, but they're not yet a Pepsi as folks know. And so you seem to really like And and we'll, the listeners will hear this in our conversation because you and I have spoken in the past. You're very analytical and you segment things into tranches and hierarchies and will this work? Will this not work? So you just went into that aisle and you said, oh crap, this is a toy store for me. And I'm about to just start trying stuff. And then, so did you go to your bosses at TPG and be like, okay, we should invest in this. Or was it like, listen. our mandate is 50 million and up and these guys need five. You know, so you switched. What was up? Yeah, I think it started with questions.
1: I don't think I was provocative enough to say we, we should be investing. It was more, why are we not investing in this stuff? Because mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. this time, Mind bar had just been partially acquired, a pretty meaningful okay. transaction. Uh, buy was on its way to, I think a $1.7 or $1.6 billion exit to Dr. Pepper Snapple. We were aware that these big brands were picking up steam and were going to create some real Mm -hmm. big outcomes. But it was generally Mm -hmm. well understood that they were still just too small for us before that big strategic exit came along. And so it was not so much, hey, we should be doing this, we should be breaking all of our rules and doing it. It was more, hey, given that we can't do it, who is? Somebody must be doing it. Who is doing this? How mm-hmm. do I go get to know them? And eventually, how do I go work?
0: And for the listener, can you just really briefly break down the private equity model and what they're seeking to achieve with an investment and then flip and the multiple yeah. that's achieved both with buy, kind, et cetera? Yeah. So a private equity firm, first of all,
1: manages funds, which are pools of money contributed by a collection of people. Typically, Mm -hmm. that will be high net worth individuals, institutional groups like sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, insurance companies, pool all that capital together, and they'll go out and invest it in companies that are not publicly traded. They'll either make minority investments, which would be venture capital growth equity, or they'll make buyout investments, meaning they'll buy an entire company. And they will Mm -hmm. try to hold that company or hold that investment for, depending on the stage of business, somewhere between three and eight years before ultimately selling to somebody else, either selling to a private equity firm, selling to a competitor, a larger competitor, or taking the company public. And the way that 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 firm, that private equity firm makes money is by charging a fee on a percentage of the assets that they manage and then a share of profit Mm -hmm. when they ultimately exit
0: Mm -hmm. a company at a profit. And so when we're talking about behavioral change for an individual or a company or really at a societal level, you're pulling assets from folks who have them and folks that want to see a return on their money. You're investing those assets into companies that are in the wheelhouse stuff that you're an expert in. And then those companies get more valuable. You sell them. The company shareholders do well. The shareholders in the fund do well. Ideally, the employees do pretty well. And when it comes to your current firm, Selva, that's a little bit earlier in the value chain of a company's life cycle. So for the listener, you think, okay, I'm going to go found a company. Great. I got my money from my friends, my family, I raised 500K. A year later, okay, we've made, let's say we've made 100K in sales. Let's get some angel investment. So I call some people I know, I get another 500K in funding. Then next step, let's say we're selling a million a year. Then I call Kiva and I say, hey, we're actually selling a million a year we're in whole foods, we've got this many units, we're looking to expand. And that's when you come in. Right. And, and so I think what, you know, is so interesting having you on is that you're an expert at getting people to care about their health through food. And I know you're interested in other stuff like sleep and maybe even food as medicine or bowls. We've talked about all that given my past role at Crescent health where right. I was head of growth or sleep coaching. And so you being an expert, I think in behavioral change from an individual's psychology and using that company as a container to drive change in society is super interesting. What are you seeing out there now? What are the trends you're seeing in the market when it comes to food? What are people buying? What are they no longer buying? What is my grandma buying? What is she no longer buying? What are you seeing out there? What's changing? I think at the highest level, people
1: are trying to consume more whole foods meaning ingredients that they recognize and understand, products that have fewer ingredients, produce and fresh foods that sit around the perimeter of the store. That's a mega trend that is not new to 2023. Mm -hmm. They are trying to consume less sugar, Mm -hmm. processed foods. And there is probably an evolving way that, Consumers are trying to achieve this, but they're also trying to, uh, at some degree, consume less animal byproducts. So whether it's less meat or less dairy, less products that come from either extraction or killing of animals. And Hmm. those are these general North Stars that, that consumers are at scale moving towards. But underneath that, there are a whole bunch of micro changes that consumers are following that we're trying to predict the sustainability of and invest behind. So that might be be lower inflammation ingredients. People for a Mm long time have thought about how gluten affects folks' health. That has transitioned to a number of brands, not just positioning themselves as gluten-free, but grain-free. Mm Tramine ingredients that can replace previously inflammatory ingredients that allow you to have the same bread, crackers, pizza, pasta, whatever it may be, with an alternative set of ingredients that have you feeling better afterwards, even if you may not be allergic to the underlying ingredient. So there are a number of these smaller changes like that, that given just how big the food and beverage world is, when a brand or company is able to make some change that solves a problem for consumers. Even if the deal is relatively smaller niche,
0: the market is big enough that big companies can get built behind that chain. Hey, which ones are you excited about now with relation to lower inflammation, not just gluten-free, but grain-free? You know, what's the total addressable market for that specific company and what do you see? Well, what are you excited about there?
1: Yeah, I think we have gone through a period of time where ingredient labels have been either looking for as little sugar and carbs as possible at the expense of some new, potentially highly processed ingredients, or more whole food, shorter ingredient deck. And both, frankly, have been quite successful efforts. So if we look within the nutritional bar category, there's a company called One Bar that has 20 grams of protein, one gram of sugar in every single bar. Then there's a company called RX Bar that has Mm -hmm. the ingredient label displayed very clearly on the front, specifically known for having no BS at the bottom, eggs, dates, nuts, no BS. RX Bar has more sugar than one bar, but has fewer ingredients than one bar. One bar has more protein and less sugar. So each of those approaches have solved real consumer problems, and both of those companies have been credible outcomes for the investor. One bar sold to Hershey, RX Bar Scholl sold to Kellogg's. Mm-hmm. I think over time, we are seeing probably growth in both but potentially a bit more consumer acceptance of the rx bar side of the equation that short ingredient deck only things that the consumer really understands we see that being a place that we're looking to dig deeper there are certain categories and places where the one bar approach works really well we love a business called lemon perfect beverage brand with with no sugar and, and erythritol as a sweetener. Fantastic mm-hmm. functional lemonade business that is doing exceptionally well. We're excited about a business called Clever Blends, which is a, an instant latte brand of different types. They have a great chai, a matcha, a turmeric. Mm-hmm. They similarly are very low sugar. We think those brands that can achieve low sugar without, without sacrificing the the sweetness and indulgent profile that the consumer really loves and remembers is nostalgic. can be really powerful. But we're also really looking for these whole food situations that allow consumers to have almost like a perimeter of the store approach consumed in the center of the store. Dry goods, long shelf life, packaged foods that are just a lot more whole food ingredients than what we think of traditionally as dry shelf stable pack
0: and so you're bifurcating between the right the perimeter of the store which you think about produce but being imported to the middle of the store in an rx bar form where it's five ingredients by the way i love rx bars they remain one of my go-tos it is so good and yeah they are a bit sweet but they check the box you feel great um and everyone listening knows the rx bar i think most people know one the one bar and the fact that they got sold to hershey's and to You mentioned Kellogg, right? Yeah. Hershey's was one bar and Kellogg was our ex-bar.
1: And both of those, those are two of the most successful consumer brands ever. Ever. I think it shows that with really fragmented and different consumer needs, there's just a lot of ways to solve consumer problems and to achieve really big growth out of it. We're invested actually in a functional chocolate bar called Midday Squares that's a perfect example of a perimeter light approach to a traditional center of the store product. That's a mm-hmm. protein bar meats and chocolate bar that is sold in the fridge, actually in the refrigerated set, yes. because they've taken out all the preservatives and they've really leaned hmm. into fresh. And what that means had no idea. is oh. the consumer gets a really short ingredient deck, whole foods, yeah. And they get it in the format that they know and love and brings them back to eating Reese's peanut butter cups as a kid.
0: I think one of the most interesting parts of the podcast of yours, which I listened to on CPG and my my podcast being a little more health focused from individual to group to national policy level, this idea of nostalgia that you touch on quite a bit in your previous speaking engagements where... When you're talking about changing someone's behavior, for me as a health coach, it's, hey, what did you do when you were 18? Were you a hockey player? Great. Let's get you doing some kind of hockey, even though you're 45. I want to get you moving again. For your world, it's, hey, Midday Squares, right? Or Three Wishes, which is a cereal company, which I think you guys are invested in. It's taking that nostalgia and converting it to consumer behavior. And we want, everyone wants to be healthier, but you don't want to give up what makes you feel good. And food ultimately makes us feel good. Maybe you and I are the super hardcore people who could just eat celery and peanut butter every day. If our doctor told us to. it, uh, you even knew you were shaking your head. Probably not no way. Yeah. See, I could, I'm a, I have a, I'm a savage with my food and I could do that, but it's not enjoyable. And then every once in a while I cheat and that's, I binge and it's not fun. So you're saying that the, one of the biggest levers here is nostalgia and another one is trust in brands. Could you touch a bit on both of those? Cause I know you touched on trust as well. I think nostalgia. And frankly, I would bring it forth to just say
1: engagement in some way. You want your product to be engaging to the consumer. You want it to be fun. You want it to be memorable. Very few people out there eat to live. Most people live to eat. That means it has to be fun. And in order to build a big business, I think you need your consumers to come back to you often and they need to share you with the people that they love. And mm. that can only happen if it's engaging. I think on trust, we believe our mission just as a starting point is to invest in brands to make their consumers' lives better to us. That means better ingredients, better fo- focus, sorry, better ingredients, better function, and better emotional connection with the consumer. We think that emotional connection with the consumer is a few things. The first is probably, it's to say that when somebody picks up something that your package or brand name is consistent, is you, they know what to expect. They believe that either the quality is there or that you stand for a set of values. Midday squares would never have a preservative in their product. Mm-hmm. Plant-based, plant-based brands would never have meat, by, animal byproducts in their products, etc. People use brands to make their life easier, frankly. And that means Mm. that they put a lot of trust in the shortcut taken to not have to research every single product decision. So Mm. that's a really important function that brands have. It's that piece of trust to make your consumer's lives easier. It also makes, Mm. it gives your consumer something to express themselves with. So when you stand for a set of values, if your identity is an athlete, if your identity is an animal rights activist, if your identity is a a whole food connoisseur, earth and sustainability advocate, the brands that you associate yourself with are going to be telling that story to the world, to the people that you spend time with. Mm. Wearing a Patagonia jacket or wearing a pair of Nikes is really no different. And foods and brands and, and basically everything that you put in, on and around your body are little methods of self-expression that form a really tight bond between you and those companies. And so that puts a really high burden on the companies to stand for something, to
0: express who they are, and to get it right. Wow. The shortcuts to displaying a message and the shortcuts to solving a problem really brings home what we always think of as brands, as this, oh, it's just a marketing thing, it's just a brand, to somebody's actual life where they're only buying that because they want to tell their friends When they have a house party they're giving nowadays which are the nuggets which are made out of plant-based protein you're actually really tying emotion brand messaging and brand story right together you're saying this person wants to talk about who they are and by sharing this food at a party by giving this food to a friend when they arrive to their house by wearing the patagonia it's an instant messaging has that changed since the 90s like our parents generation 80s Because now it's like, we all tell these stories. We all have our own profiles. We all have our own brands, maybe. Has that changed or is it just a different iteration of it that that feels cool because we're younger? I think if you go
1: back to the beginning of soda and beer and cigarette ads, it's never Uh really been about product differentiation. It's been about who you are. And Uh what I think has changed has only been that there are so many more options for consumers now. Consumer taste has mm-hmm. always been really wide, but it's silly to think that there would only just be like Coke or Pepsi people, that there were always extremely unique and fragmented consumer tastes. And what has happened in the past, call it 10 years, is there's been an explosion of micro brands that have been able mm-hmm. to meet those unique and more niche consumer needs. Some of them have built up the momentum to be able to grow quite large. Rx bar came to Mm -hmm. exist because there was nothing else in the market. The idea of having a five or six ingredient nutrition bar was not obvious when Peter started that company and picked up steam and that niche audience of crossfitters that he got it started with ultimately rolled into a large momentum snowball that gathered more and more momentum down the hill. And all of a sudden it's not a CrossFit product, it's something that I'll eat to get through a busy afternoon when I'm on the go, even if I'm not working out that week. And so I I think what we've seen is there's always been this wide range of consumer needs that come from all of us being so unique. What Mm -hmm. has been more recent is the ability for small brands to go out and solve those problems.
0: I see. So even in Coke Pepsi 1950s, there was probably 20 different sets of people who would prefer 20 different sodas, but it just weren't really available. Exactly. So you had to pick one. Exactly. And Coke and Pepsi aren't really bifurcated in almost any way. There's a taste difference, sure, but they're both black soda with high sugar. Sh- and yeah. that's when I was a uh-huh. kid eating, drinking root beer all the time, and my mom would pull
1: her hair out, wishing that I didn't do that. If I had the option of drinking Olipop at the time, my mom would have loved it, yeah. but it didn't. Uh huh. And so uh-huh. you know, it was mug or A and W or Barks. It was not uh-huh. Olipop or Zevia or one of these healthier
0: options that that would have been a lot better for my whole body and my teeth. And when it comes to RX Bar story or Ollie story, I'm not sure where Ollie Pop started, but RX Bar being CrossFit focused, you and I spoke last spring about crossing the chasm. This idea, and I'll put this in the video if folks are watching that there's an early adopter group. Then there's a more mainstream group. Then you cross the chasm into normal folks. And then there's late adopters. And maybe you can elucidate that differently than I have. How did RxBar do it? How are some of your portfolio companies, if you want to do a shameless plug, because you know them so well, how are they doing that? And why is that important? Often in
1: consumer products, this happens via retailers. So most people buy their food and beverage products in retail. You know, maybe some on Amazon, but may discover new brands in their grocery stores or local boutiques. And retailers need to buy into what you're doing to give you a chance. So when a new healthy product comes to market, often there's local boutiques, maybe there's boutique fitness and gyms that are willing to give them a chance. And maybe it's the natural retailers, but it's not. Kroger and Albertsons and Walmart and Target that are bringing them onto shelves. It's only once you're selling in a retailer that Kroger, Albertsons, and Walmart look at as similar enough to them that Mm. they start to consider that you might be a fit. The Hmm. reason ultimately is that it's a different consumer that shops each of those stores. The person who shops at Erewhon in Los Angeles is really different from the person who shops at Walmart. And so, somebody buying the product adamantly at Erewhon who has a really high willingness to pay and deep knowledge on natural products is just—they're not a great signal that the product is going to work Hmm. if Walmart allocates shelf space to them. So, there's these retailers in the middle that we look at as potential like chasm and crosser whole foods is often one of them Mm -hmm. routes is another one these larger natural retailers that stand for natural but have much more mass appeal than the small local high-end spots that are not given as much as much credit by the large conventional and mass retailers so that curve that you show that there being a gap often that gap is Mm -hmm. somewhere between Whole Foods Sprouts in Safeway Albertsons. And the question is whether Mm -hmm. there's some way that you can prove that the data that you're generating and the traction and signal that you're generating in Whole Foods and Sprouts is relevant to that next stage that Safeway Albertsons comes.
0: And a brand can do that how? Is it revenue? Is it volume? Is
1: it volume from a certain store?
0: The metric that we look at most
1: closely in consumer products is called velocity. Velocity is Effectively, all things equal, forget how many stores you're selling in. Forget how mm-hmm. many different facings you have in the store. Forget the price mm-hmm. that you sell at. Just how mm-hmm. many per unit that you have on shelf, How many products do you sell per week? How many units do you sell per week? And so when a given store has a product that is selling much faster, than the other competitive products on shelf. But Mm -hmm. that means to another retailer, meaning if Safeway sees a product selling really fast velocity at Whole Foods, they'll think maybe if we bring them in, even if it doesn't do quite as well as it does at Whole Foods, it will still do better than some of the competitors Mm -hmm. in our set. So that will be worth giving them a chance. Remember, by the way, that when a retailer is making a decision of what to bring in, Mm-hmm. They need to attract a consumer's entire two to three hundred dollar grocery bill. And uh, the way that they do that mm-hmm. is one, where they're geographically located, like where you decide to do your grocery shopping is partially a matter of convenience. And then mm-hmm. it's partially a matter of assortment, meaning mm-hmm. you're not going to decide where to do your grocery shopping by having hit rate on everything that you need. Otherwise, you might have to go to five different stores. You're going to pick one store and you're going to make sure that you get the important things right. And the rest, who cares, as long as it's good enough. So there are Mm -hmm. some people who shop at, for example, Safeway instead of Kroger because they can get Mm -hmm. Olipop at Safeway and they can't get it at Kroger. And they might spend $10 on Olipop on their grocery bill. But they bring with it $300 of other things, garbage bags, produce, Mm -hmm. milk, et cetera, everything through the store for the next two weeks. So a grocery store needs to get that assortment right. They need to attract that consumer into the store to make sure that they don't lose the entire $300 order to another grocer.
0: And just bringing this home for the listeners, because this is how grocery stores and buyers and analysts think about your data and your decisions. So you can think about them in the same way. Think about your own purchase decisions. Do you go to X store for Olipop? I love Olipop. I love Rx. I go to Costco because they have Rx and there's certain places I'll go for coconut water, etc. cetera. And I guess maybe just more of a selfish question for me, how are they doing the data analysis here? Cause are they watching carts? Or are they doing credit card receipts? Are they having somebody standing outside the door looking what people buy with channel check, you know, as it used to be called, have some background there. And how are they doing that research? So
1: Nielsen, the same company that, that you may have heard of from television show rating TV actually has a point of sale data network across the world where they will track scan data from all of the checkout machines at a number of retailers across the country. And from that, they will actually collect and aggregate a whole bunch of by UPC, so by individual products, rolling up to the ultimate brands that they sit under, what the volume of each of those brands are at all of the stores that they cover across the country. And then anyone from other retailers to large CPG companies like Pepsi, Coke, and General Mills to private equity firms and hedge funds will go out and Mm. buy that data from Nielsen. So Mm. What you get is this large dump of data that you then have to have an analyst go and cut up to see, you know, in this region of Whole Foods, how fast is Midday Square selling? How fast is Ollipop selling? And people make a lot of decisions like that based off that information. A retailer may look at that information and decide to bring a new brand onto their shelf. A large CPG company may look at that information and decide to buy that brand. We as an investor may look at that information and decide to invest in that brand.
0: So it's first, I don't think people realize that. So I don't real. I don't know if they realize that everything they shop is being Tracked and it should be anonymized. I think it's generally very anonymized. There's no big brother element to
1: it. I've looked at this data. Yeah. I, I assure you there's nothing Good. to worry about.
0: Good. And in that sense, it makes a pretty competitive market. And uh, one thing I want to ask you, like just this, we keep going into the, the weeds of the small companies and the big companies in the food space. If people like you, if everyone is an investor, like you, all the money would be flowing to these smaller or mid-sized companies that have less ingredients and Cleaner profiles, so going from the perimeter of the store of produce, but making it packaged and repeat and preserved in the fridge. Which, by the way, I just ordered midday squares. I just ordered myself some mud water. So love it to try those. Yeah, thank you for this. I was like, I've got to do that. I got to support the man's balance sheet. <laughs> so, what is what are we up against as a country when one out of ten people have diabetes? Obesity was at forty one percent before COVID. According to the CDC, so. Not to be a bummer. I think I'm glad these things are coming. What can we do to incentivize bigger companies to keep the Hershey's and Kellogg's keep investing like this? The problem
1: with our food system is that unhealthy product is cheaper, more convenient, and easier to understand. Got it. It is so easy to put processed crap in your body by how easy it is to prepare by how well distributed it is and how easy it is to understand what you're getting. Everything is so familiar. Whether it's fast food or simple processed goods that you can get at a gas station. Unhealthy product is simply everywhere. I think that it is unwise to look at the large CBG companies or the large retailers and blame them for this problem.
0: Yeah, expand on that. This
1: problem is a product of capitalism. Capitalism is simply a set of incentives where people vote with their dollars. We consumers are the problem. We're voting for the wrong things. We're simply looking to spend less and look for more convenience and not taking the time to better understand what we're putting in our bodies. If everybody all of a sudden said, we don't want to eat meat anymore, or we don't want to eat Mm -hmm. refined sugar anymore, it would no longer be profitable for food companies to sell those products. It would no longer make sense Mm -hmm. for retailers to sell those products. And they simply wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So the problem that we're trying to solve is making these healthier products more fun, more convenient, more affordable, more easy to understand. We want it to be the pr- mm. people look forward to. Going back to your example of trying to convince everybody to eat peanut butter on celery is just an unrealistic fool errand. people will not adopt that at scale, no matter how much we pound the table of its importance to our healthcare system or these people's People are going to do what they want and they're going to solve for ease, convenience. They want to enjoy what they eat. So it is on us to innovate and make it easier for people to get the flavors and formats that they've always loved to have it be better distributed, to not have to drive 45 minutes to go to a whole foods, but just drive five minutes to the local Walmart and achieve Mm. the, have access to the same products there. And over time, make the products more affordable with scale and better investment in the supply chains, Be businesses, you have opportunity to make these products cheaper and more accessible to more consumers over time. But all of that starts with creating magical, highly engaging new products that are just amazing, that surprise and delight people. That's what we're looking for at the earliest stage. Credible outlying products that surprise and delight their consumers form that emotional connection, such that consumers want to shout about it from the rooftops. And then we want to give them that fuel and that help to make sure that their mm-hmm. message that they're shouting from the rooftops does not fall on deaf ears.
0: So they're building the rocket. When you see that the rocket has a chance of launching, a lot of people are interested in this rocket launch. You're like, all right, we've got the fuel. Here it is. So let's do it. Exactly. And you're a believer in distribution, convenience, and messaging to get this across the consumer. Are you for, against regulation of sugar in processed food and CPG? Do you think that's something we need to do? Has Europe done it? I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. I think that's a harder question. I think for sure, certainly regulation has been really helpful to make it more difficult to consume certain products. I'm thinking about like soda and cigarettes. A lot of these these products people don't understand are just incredibly addictive. Yes. Fine sugar is incredibly addictive. And so- if you can make it more difficult for children to consume these products early in their life, you really reduce the chance that those children become addicted and continue to consume those products for long periods of time. So I think there's a role for regulation 100%. But I don't think that this problem gets solved by regulation alone. You need Um, options that are highly effective, engaging, fun, easy to access, convenient to consume, and affordable. I think that's the only way. And that comes through innovation in the private sector, not
0: just regulation from the public sector. And I think I, I agree with you in some respects, because as you're noting, you need to fight fire with fire. And instead of just legislating bad food out of existence, you can't do it. I mean, look at prohibition for one thing, look at sin taxes on alcohol and cigarettes. And as you mentioned soda, the demand is still there. Although there have been some public health successes around smoking. I think smoking went from 20% in the early nineties to, I don't know if it's 5% now. And I think you're right on the addictive qualities of refined sugar. And it's quite a bit coming out on the microbiome and how much it controls our brains. Frankly, I'll put some studies in the show notes. So you're suggesting fight fire with fire, get the distribution right, get the messaging right. Get the last piece, which would be making it simple for the person to make a decision, make it not just simple, make it exciting, make it solve a problem for them. Hey, my doctor says I need to lose weight, but I found this really cool thing. Tell everyone at work, bring it on to work on Fridays. So I agree there. And one interesting company, I don't know if you've heard of, is it Every Table? Have you heard of that company? Okay. And what I guess for the audience, what they're doing is taking the fast food model of fast production, cheap prices, and tasty food, But they're bringing more fresh ingredients in. So they're bringing salads, freshly made meats, veggies, broccoli, and your chicken. But they're making it fresh that day. And they're using supply chains, which are as effective, or that's their hope, as effective as a Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's. And they're building in food swamps or food deserts. So you think inner cities or very rural towns that don't have a lot. So that and that's one example of taking what's working really well in food distribution in this country and just using a different model. And I generally philosophically lean towards, probably like you, less regulation and more private sector innovation just because it goes faster. What else are you seeing in companies that are doing that really well, which are just crushing it? I think we have for a long time
1: seen the innovation within food and beverage come at a a really high price to consumers and therefore mm-hmm. somewhat of a perception that this is a a category or movement for more affluent folks. Yes. Elites who live on the coasts, who shop at Hulk Foods yep. and drive their Tesla to get there. And I think what we've seen become really effective over the last few years is a recognition from some of the most powerful innovators to get prices down and access more mass retailers and reach more people who ultimately can connect with the products just as well. Some of the ones we've talked about today, Lemon Perfect is, I think, $1.50 a bottle, maybe $2 a bottle. Midday Squares mm-hmm. got down their Product from, I think it used to be $4, now it's $2.50. That meat at Midday Squares now doesn't just sell in Sprouts, they sell in every Target across the country. What they're selling in Walmarts across Canada. And this is just a great example. If you want to build a big business, you follow the money. So much of the retail volume in our country occurred Mm -hmm. in small town Walmarts, not just whole Mm -hmm. Sprouts. And so Being able to, one, create a a product that is going to be enjoyable and easy to understand, not just for people who are used to having lower sugar natural products, but people who are trying to trade away from Reese's peanut butter cups and sugary drinks. Two, having a value proposition that's easy enough to understand that somebody's going to pick it up in the one second you get to catch their attention and get why they should have it. And three, have a price point that is going to get that retailer on board and get that consumer on board to try it. That's the magic. It's not creating something that's $20 versus your $5. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think the movement towards these more mass appeal products, I think it's allowing this healthy movement to reach more consumers. And it's really good news for folks like us who are
0: looking to invest in products and brands that can become really big. I love it. I think you're hitting like the nail on the head with the everyman. You're getting to the normal American, normal Canadian who wants to be healthier, but can't afford it. And I think all the incentives are aligned for both the investor, the brand and the Walmart. Yep. Absolutely. Because we got to do it, right? We want our country to be healthier. No one wants to see their family, their friends be unhealthy. And like people like you and me might've grown up with veggies. My parents are similar. I think there is. But like we want our best friend or whoever it is to get healthier. That's why we do this. There is right? an
1: extraordinary
0: cost
1: to our healthcare system, our society as a whole, when people yeah. are unhealthy. And it's, yeah. we're learning that proactive health is much more effective than reactive health at avoiding a number of these chronic conditions, meaning diet and exercise, not medication, is the answer to diabetes. And so we have to be getting these things right earlier on, and we have to recognize that human behavior and human psychology require it to be fun. Why did I used to exercise all the time? It's because it was just going to hockey practice and playing hockey. It wasn't needing to go through a workout route. Why did Boutique Fitness pop up and become so popular across the country? It's because it's fun. You're around other people. You're getting yelled at. Music is playing. It's not just going through a boring exercise. People want this stuff to be fun and engaging. It is the
0: hill that I will die on. So we have to find (laughs) more ways to make it fun and engaging for them to do. I love it. I think... It's just such the right mindset because it's reaching normal people, right? It's reaching your friend, your buddy you grew up with who played hockey with you, but now gained 50 pounds and doesn't feel good about themselves. How do you help them? You reach them where they're at. You make it fun. You make it engaging, affordable, right? As for somebody who makes a median or average salary. And are you talking, have you had conversations in your world? Does it ever cross your desk where there's these investor coalitions or I know the White House had a food as medicine? conference back in September and ending hunger, do you see your, your colleagues, your peers in the VC space, you know, maybe folks not involved in the political realm, but maybe the policy realm. I mean, are you hearing the bubblings of these cohorts coming up where it crosses from investing to also doing good and doing well? I think every year, that? the conversations that my peers and I
1: have start to look more like the conversations that are having in more mainstream circles. And mm-hmm. I hear language. Like Food is Medicine showed up in the theme decks that I was building four or five years ago at the start of this firm. Now you're hearing about it from large companies. You're hearing about it from politicians. I think that's a really Uh, positive sign. Again, that mass behavioral change happens over decades, not overnight. And I think mm -hmm. it's a good signal to show that the work that we do to make these small innovative health movements become more of a staple in
0: modern culture will just rewarn more, more people over time i'd love to hear switching a bit from food and like what else is what are coming in your theme decks today because you guys just raised a new round for selva which i know you're excited to announce and to talk about so what themes are gonna are gonna be invested in that round When you were going out pitching to LPs, limited partners to invest in your fund so that you could deploy that capital into small companies that fit your profile, what themes are you hearing now, whether it's food or beyond food? Yeah, we're super excited about the new fund. It's a big, it's a big growth for us. Our first
1: fund was $10 million. This is 34. And so it gives us a chance to, I think, reach the same number of companies as we hope. We don't want to change our strategy, but we want to reach them in a more impactful way. And we want to support them with more resources to do so. a couple of changes in, and in, in the themes that we're excited about as time has gone on. One is certainly going beyond just what you put in your body to put what you put on and around your body. Okay. As you learn in, in living a healthier lifestyle, your skin absorbs a ton of what you put on it. And mm-hmm. it's really silly to shop at Whole Foods for what you put in your body and then buy the private label stuff at CVS to put on it. And so we have tried to take more of an effort to become a player in the world of personal care and beauty. The most powerful decision that we did that was hiring my colleague, Madeline Kaplan, last year, who's really leading the beauty and personal care effort for us and has already led to investments in the last year in that space that allow us to really extend our brand and our platform into that world. Beyond that, I think there are a number of places that we have yet to see product and innovation hit the scale that matches consumer need. I've talked about sleep with Mm -hmm. you in the past. That's certainly one of them. But another I would certainly say is mental health, that the way that mental health has reached the mainstream public vernacular is just amazing. And my wife and I are watching Ted Lasso, the latest. Oh, movie. yeah. Love it. And uh-huh. the, the way that that show, which just two years ago was, it was a fun, silly sports show with a lot of heart. And now uh-huh. they're digging into some pretty interesting mental health topics around loneliness and anxiety and in doing so really destigmatizing mental health talking about Mm -hmm. it needing help i think there are some really interesting solutions to come we've seen some great businesses get built already we've seen calm and headspace two chairs better help i think it's only the beginning for for the world of consumer products and consumer technology to meet this unmet need head-on and give a much more open-minded consumer a great set of options for how to not just work on your physical wellness, but also your mental
0: wellness. So you're seeing 24 hours a day of wellness, and that's what sells. But congrats on the tripling and a half of your AUM. So beauty and care, right? So talking about endocrine, Endocrine disruptors in our clothing. I just read actually there's some BPA. Oh, we can get into that, but in the beauty products we use. But then you're talking about sleep. You're talking about mental health. Don't give away Ted Lasso. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know by the wild. time of this publishing if I would have. It was good though, right? So the answer is it's good. And I guess you're probably hearing about psychedelic therapies coming down the pipe, right? What else? Yeah, what else are you seeing? How about wearable tech and making the association between a wearable and maybe even a product, like drawing a correlational analysis. Have you seen anything cool in that space? I know we talked sleep a lot too last year. Wearables are great in that they have given people the all-important
1: scoreboard to their decisions. <laughs> it's a lot more fun to go to bed at 9.30 and not have a glass of wine if I get a good score the next morning for doing so. I've certainly found the scoreboard incentive to be a lot more powerful than the insight benefit in most wearables. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's an N1 for me, but certainly my friends and family would probably echo that. I Mm -hmm. I think what we probably need is a next step beyond that are actionable insights on how to live a healthier life based on the unique readings that come from our data. A lot Mm -hmm. of people know Maybe they don't sleep enough or maybe they're not going to bed at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there are other pieces of data that whether it's an Oura Ring or a Fitbit or an Apple Watch may give you that you need help understanding and taking action on. I've read that a lot of the future watches, Apple or other, are going to have skin readings that measure your blood glucose. It's going to be a really mm-hmm. interesting data set that you add to a consumer's lexicon, but you need to not just show them the data. You need to actually tell them, Hey, here's a product that might actually be able to help you with that. It seems like this time of day, you keep spiking what's going on. What might mm-hmm. be a viable alternative? That's where I think connecting our world of CPG to the wearables world could be really yes, famous, exactly. spiking every day because they have a Reese's peanut butter cut. Midday squares should be chiming in that moment. That's valuable ad state and opportunity to connect with a consumer who's already taken some effort by buying the ring and wearing it every day to improve their health outcomes.
0: Super interesting. They demonstrate intent, right? By buying the ring or the Apple watch, they see the spike. Maybe they get served an ad in Apple's ad network for midday squares, or if it's an Amazon wearable, God forbid, then it's click to add midday to your cart or we've added it for you in alexa i think that's a super interesting one that you're talking about in 2023 but we might not see for three or four years Uh, connecting the physical world yeah i hope so too that's super interesting i think drawing and for brands to draw those correlations and make that messaging easy like we talked about earlier make The ingredients clear and the outcome clear it's one thing to have data right it's even one thing to have a nutrition label but it's a second thing to see how this personally affects you and i think i think drawing that connection between those two worlds super interesting kiva this has been awesome i think you've given a ground level view and a forest view on consumer behavior and i hope people listening are interested both from a business and policy perspective but also their own health and they probably realize some things about how they make decisions Anything you want to close with, anything you know, you're know you psyched about, interested in. Otherwise, thank you so much. And uh, it was great to have you on the podcast. It was my pleasure. Love the high level
1: that we got into here. And I think it's for us, we're really passionate about the impacts that we can think that we think we can have in the long term of helping more people live healthier lives. Day to day in the weeds, it sometimes feels we're just trying to help our companies get one more step up the mountain. But I yep. do think that what we're doing here is really important. And I hope that we can look back and see that some consumers at the end of this were able to, you know, to have the same kind of health outcome that I did when I started going to Whole Foods every day, to just make that healthier yep. living a little bit more engaging, a little bit more fun, something that they could look forward to.
0: Thank you. Where can people find you? I know you're big on Twitter. I know you're active on Medium, LinkedIn as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Twitter Twitter, and LinkedIn, I, I try to post a lot of stuff on what we're seeing out there and a bit more kind of inner look into the journey of what we're building. You can also go to our website, SelvaVentures.com to follow along with the companies that we're investing in and to learn a little bit more about us.
0: Okay, awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you for listening to my podcast with Kiva Dickinson. No doubt you learned something on consumer psychology how the food system is changing, how brands are built, and much, much more. The best way, if you don't mind, to support me is by subscribing on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify, or wherever you're listening. If it feels right, leave a five-star review. And more importantly, please share this with a friend. I'm trying to get the message out there and make health simple for more and more people.